Welcome to the Christian Mysticism Podcast, where we explore the fascinating history of Christian mysticism from the early days of the church until today. I'm Alberto de la Cruz, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Carlos Ayer, the T. Lawrence Riggs Professor of History and Religious Studies at Yale University. Welcome back, Carlos. Hey, it's great to be here. Merry Christmas. And a very Merry Christmas to you as well. I also want to wish our listeners a very Merry Christmas and remind them that if you're enjoying the show, please click the like button, please subscribe so you don't miss another episode. And even better than that, tell your friends about it so they can enjoy the Christian Mysticism podcast along with you. So today, talking about Christmas, we have a very special episode. We have the Mystical Christmas episode where Carlos will talk to us about some mystics and their connections to Christmas. So take it away, Carlos. Yes. Well, uh, I guess uh, one way of putting it is that we'd like to focus on Christmas as a kind of mysticism for all Christians through the stories that can be interwoven between certain saints and mystics and the Christmas story. Because uh, when you come right down to it, the imagery of Christmas is mystical. It points to um, a great mystery and a great miracle. And some mystics have experienced this miracle or tried to actually pass on their experience of this miracle to others by either creating symbols or doing things that later became symbolic of Christmas. And the first of these is none other than St. Francis of Assisi. St. Francis's contribution to the celebration of Christmas is considered by many to be substantial, perhaps more substantial to the celebration of Christmas than many other saints and many other mystics. And the reason for this is that exactly 800 years ago, in December of 1223, which is about three years before he died, Francis got the inspiration to recreate Christmas as vividly as possible. So some say that he invented the nativity scene, replicating the the image of baby Jesus laying on, on the hay in a stable surrounded by farm animals. He didn't invent this. For a few centuries, there had been recreations of the Christmas miracle in play form in Christmas festivals. So he didn't really invent it, but the way he did it and where he did it and who he was made all the difference because after his recreation of Christ's birth at Greccio, which is north of Rome, between Rome and, and Assisi, after he did this on the 23rd of December, it caught on and spread very, very widely. And what we see, uh, or maybe I should say what we used to see in many Christmas cards, you know, the the Christmas scene, the manger, Christ in the manger, the shepherds, the wise men, all of these figures. This is what uh, Francis tried to recreate and has been, uh, is still being replicated at Greccio and many other places. And from descriptions I've read of what it's like, people who attend these recreations tend to find them very moving, even mystical. Now, we're all familiar with the nativity scene. A lot of us grew up with it. We see it in churches. We see it in shopping malls and uh, all over the place during this this time of year. 
But what's the connection there with mysticism? Well, it has everything to do with the encounters that St. Francis had with Christ himself throughout his life as a mystic, and also with Francis's ability to grasp very, very deeply the mystery of the Incarnation as the ultimate surrender of God to absolute poverty. I mean, God himself lets go, abandons everything, every power he has, and becomes a human being. But he doesn't do it by uh, instantly sort of appearing, right, as God could do. But he's born like all other humans. And it was this self-debasing of God, also self-effacing of God, that struck Francis as the greatest miracle of all. So signifying the birth of God as a newborn infant is, for Francis, an expression of his encounters with the human Christ and a way of making this these mystical experiences that he had available to others through the representation of the birth event of Jesus. So, in many ways, I'd like to argue an attempt to spread meditation on Christ to common people, to lay people, to everyone. In a way, it's uh, it could be called a form of mystical missionary work, <laughs> right? Recreating this and having people become part of the scene. I should add that throughout the Middle Ages and afterwards, the practice of meditating on events in the Gospels was growing in popularity as a form of devotion. The idea being, put yourself into the story. Imagine yourself there. This can bring you much, much closer, not just to the story, but to God, to Jesus, to the Virgin Mary, everyone who was there at the stable. I can't help but to recall that St. Ignatius also was a big advocate of meditating. Oh, yeah. Past, and that was a couple hundred, 300 years later. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, you know, Ignatius Loyola didn't invent this. He just popularized, in the same way that uh, Francis popularized the nativity scene by creating this event in 1223, St. Ignatius Loyola popularized this practice of this type of meditation, of placing yourself there. He had read several devotional texts from the 15th century that emphasized this kind of meditation. Yeah. So they're both popularizers. Uh, the amazing thing is that in the case of St. Ignatius, you, know, you already had printed books. And not only that, you know, he established the Jesuit order and they became very, very interested in passing on this type of meditation to lay people. case of Francis, there are no printing presses. <laughs> so it, what, it, what he started took off a lot more slowly, right? But eventually both would have a very deep, deep impact, especially on Catholic devotion. You know, as I think about the connections between the nativity scene and mysticism, it dawns on me, and I really had never thought of it this way, but when you think about it, there were countless mystical 
experiences that took place that led to the birth of Christ from, you know, starting with the Immaculate Conception, but the angel appearing before Mary, the angel appearing before Joseph, the angel telling Joseph to take Jesus out of Bethlehem and go to Egypt. There were so many mystical experiences that took place. It's that nativity scene is a product of, came to be because of mystical experiences. Right. Absolutely. One thing about this particular story, Francis's story, is that Francis had gone to the Holy Land and visited Bethlehem. And it was his exposure to being there at that spot that many think inspired him to stage this recreation because he had deep mystical experiences in the Holy Land, in Bethlehem in particular, being there at the spot physically where the event happened. And and this is very typical of medieval piety and of Catholic piety in general, is this idea of recreating something as a way of having the experience of the reality of some wondrous miracle, which is in many ways, as I said before, a kind of mystical missionary work by those who try to have to stage these recreations so that people can have a deeper religious experience. Because as, as we know, we've talked about this many times, there are different levels of mystical experience from the very simple, which most believers have repeatedly, to the most exalted kinds of and rare kinds of mystical experiences that few men and women ever have described. So in the case of Francis, uh, you know, once again, uh, we have Francis, the figure of the man absolutely committed to total poverty, taking immense delight in the fact that Jesus was born to a homeless couple. Let's put it that way. <laughs> right? Joseph and Mary were not actually homeless, but they were away from home and had no place to stay. And they had the baby had to be born in, in a stable with animals. And actually what he did that was uh, considered very, very new was that he asked for real he asked a friend of his, a, a man who lived in Gre- Greccio, which is why it happened there. His name was, was Giovanni, John, Giovanni Velita. He had fallen under the spell of Francis and had begun to renounce all his worldly honors and was trying to imitate Francis and his commitment to poverty. So Francis asked him to prepare a cave, a cave with live animals and a manger full of hay. Those are two very important components of every recreation of the nativity scene. And here's what Francis said to his friend Giovanni, John Velita, as recorded in the life of Francis by Thomas of Solano. And I'm going to quote, If you want to celebrate the feast of the Lord at Greccio, hurry and diligently prepare what I tell you. For I wish to recall to memory the little child who was born in Bethlehem. I want to set before our bodily eyes the hardships of his infant knees, how he lay in the manger, how with an ox and an ass standing by, he lay upon the hay. Those are Francis's words, according to Thomas of Solano. And John did that. He got an ass and an ox. (laughs) got some hay, 
and place the hay, you know, in the cave, place the hay on a rock. And by the way, that rock is still there. And uh, every time it's recreated, of course, there's hay on the rock, which reminds me of another story from Thomas of Solano, that, which, you know, our, our listeners can get a better understanding of Francis's constant mystical experiences. There's a story in Thomas of Solano about one of Francis's disciples, Brother Juniper. At one time, Brother Juniper and Francis were out in the open air, I mean, in the countryside, and they, were, they came to a rock, and Francis asked Juniper to wash the rock and then to anoint the rock with blessed oil. And Brother Juniper did what he was told to do, but was puzzled. And he asked Francis, why are you, you know, lavishing so much attention on this rock? He said, oh, because Jesus has appeared to me many times on this rock. And it's a very special rock, which needs to be treated with extra dignity. So out in the open, Francis was having visions of Christ, having conversations with Christ on a rock. Same thing with this rock in the cave with the ox and the ass next to it. People flocked to it at first recreation. And Francis' intention was to help people realize what God had done and how poor, and this is a quote, how poor he chose to be for our sakes. And it's a way of emphasizing the humanity of Jesus as well as the divinity of saying that both are inseparable. Thomas of Solano, his hagiographer, also says, and I quote again, he would often meditate on the desolation of Christ and his holy mother with tears. And he maintained that poverty was the queen of the virtues as she had become so radiantly manifest in the king, that's Christ, and his mother. Thomas of Solano devotes an entire chapter of his hagiography to this this Christmas story. Well, I think hearing this story and and hearing how the nativity scene became popularized and introduced to the rest of the world, it's it's hard to deny its connections to to mysticism. Besides the fact that it symbolizes or illustrates the birth of, which we've mentioned here on this show before, the ultimate mystic, which was Christ in human form. That's right. Who had constant mystical experiences that the rest of the myst- Christian mystics have been trying for centuries to copy or to come close to to anything that of the union that Christ had with the divine. Oh yeah, absolutely. Francis had the special focus on poverty. So this is a way of trying to find a way in which people could have greater appreciation of the sacrifice made by the divine, by, you know, Jesus. And, you know, one can ask all sorts of questions because there's nothing in the Gospels about it. What was the infancy of Jesus like? What did he experience as he grew up and matured? All we have in the Gospels is, oh, they went to Egypt and they returned. But we have no idea about anything else that happened. And then you also have the gospel story about Jesus when he was about 12 or 13. His family goes to Jerusalem and he gets lost. I mean, he doesn't get lost. He remains behind 
and his family thinks that he's somewhere in the caravan, but he's not. And then they frantically look for him back in Jerusalem, and he's at the temple talking to fully grown, mature rabbis, and they're amazed at what he has to say. That's all we said. That's all we know. And then they go back to Nazareth, and he grew. We're told that, yeah, Jesus kept growing, and God was very pleased with him. But he was God. So the theology gets a little complicated here. But he definitely is, as they say, the reason for the season. That's right. But it's obvious Christmas, besides being the celebration of the birth of Christ, has a very strong association to Santa Claus and shopping and gift-giving. But throughout the world, it's not just Santa Claus that's the figure that symbolizes Christmas. Right. There are so many images that are tied to, you know, the the gospel stories about the birth of Christ. You know, it's very interesting that it's only the gospel of Matthew that has the, the story recreated by Francis and the story recreated in every nativity scene is only in the gospel of Matthew. So we have, you know, who else is there? Well, it's the shepherds. And of course, it's, it's Mary and Joseph. And eventually, these three magi show up from the east. And they have to be at every nativity scene if it's going to be fully representational of, of what happened. And I remember, uh, as a matter of fact, my father used to set up this giant nativity scene inside our house. It, it took over our entire dining room. I mean, the table would, it would just the table would be taken up by this nativity scene, and other tables would be set up. It was huge. It was immense. The whole room. But after Christmas, the three figures of the three magi, who were off in another room, would show up and start moving closer and closer and closer to the manger until on January 6th, then they'd be placed right at the manger, following the whole liturgical way of celebrating Christmas, the 12 days of Christmas, from the 25th, celebrating the birth, to the 6th of January, celebrating Epiphany, which is when the Magi show up. But these Magi, who are they? They're, they're mysterious figures. What are they doing there? They're not Jewish, but they've come to see the newborn king of the Jews. And the amount of ink that has been spilled on this is, is so immense, probably beyond measure. But, you know, th those are three key figures because they symbolize or represent the way in which this quote-unquote king of the Jews was born not just for the Jewish people, but for everyone on earth. So these magi represent the non-Jews, the Gentiles, who have some knowledge in some way. How, how and when did these three magi hear of the story that there was going to be a new king born to the Jews and a star would appear and lead them there? It's one of the more mysterious and, to be honest, puzzling stories about the birth of Jesus as told in the Gospel of Matthew. The interesting part about the three wise men and the connection to mysticism is, as you mentioned, something told them, someone told them to follow the star and to bring gifts and to come worship the newborn king. And that was a mystical experience. But it doesn't end there, because if you go back into the biblical story, Herod had spoken to them yeah, and, and had asked them, 
What are you doing here? They said they came to see the new king of the Jews. Herod, infuriated, but playing it very Machiavellian, tells him, Oh, that's wonderful. I want to worship him too. Please let me know when you find him. And after they visited and met Jesus, according to the gospel story, God appears to them in a dream and tells them, Do not go back the same way you came. Leave and do not go see Herod. Right. So yeah. those were mystical experiences that these three magi had that not only led them to Jesus, but also showed them how to get out. Yes. And, you know, that and the messages that Joseph receives, uh, by the way, in dreams, Joseph receives these messages in dreams. It means that dreams in the Matthew story have a mystical dimension to them, that God actually does and can communicate with human beings in their dreams that have a direct communication. So these magi are a mystery. The name magi, and that's what they are called in Matthew's gospel. They're not called kings, although later they would come to be called kings, the three kings or the three wise men. The magi were priests from present-day Iran, from Persia, and their religion was Zoroastrianism. Uh, we get the English word and many other words in other European languages, magic, from magi, because the magi were into uh, all sorts of uh, mystical pursuits. And also, we would call it quasi-scientific pursuits. They were heavily into astrology, hence the star of Bethlehem, right? There's no mystery there. These Iranian or Persian magi are keeping their eye on the heavens, Something in the heavens is telling them, leading them to the spot where this new king of the Jews has been born. And as you said before, they come prepared. They're bringing gifts to give him. And Zoroastrianism is a very, very important religion that, you know, in that area, in Persia, present-day Iran, was later eclipsed by Islam, but was never completely wiped out. There are still many, many, many Zoroastrians in Iran and also living in a diaspora throughout the world. But what was this religion? And what's its connection to Judaism? Well, there are various connections. We don't have time to go through them. But perhaps it's best to focus on the main difference between Zoroastrians and Jews when it comes to their beliefs. Zoroastrians were dualists who believed there was a cosmic conflict between good and evil. And very much like the Manichaeans, we have discussed them in connection with Augustine and other early Christian Gnostics who believed that the cosmos is divided into good and evil, and there are two principal forces or deities opposed to each other, one good and one evil. So, of course, scholars of the New Testament since the 19th century, have taken the story of the Magi and, you know, diced it and sliced it in so many different ways that in the end, the assumption is made, oh, this never really happened. It couldn't have happened. How would they know about the birth of the King of the Jews and all this stuff? But the fact is, the whole Christian religion is built on the stories in the four Gospels, uh, and including the story of Jesus's birth as told by Matthew. These Gentiles non-Jews who believe in basically two divinities rather than one. They had some sense of you know, this cosmic struggle 
between good and evil, something wonderful was going to happen, and it was beginning in Bethlehem. But as the story is written, they had no clue where they were going to find this baby. They just knew that the star was pointing them in that direction. So they had to stop and ask Herod, "Uh, by the way, you know, what does your religion say about where this king of the Jews is going to be born? And there was some understanding that it would be Bethlehem. So they end up finding it. But of course, they don't tell Herod. But Herod finds out anyway. And then comes the, the horrible story about the massacre of all of the children, all the male children in Bethlehem by Herod, because he wants to make sure he has no competition for the kingships. But there's a very profound mystical dimension to the Magi story. And, you know, it points very, very clearly to an understanding of non-Christians and non-Jews being able to connect with, with God, with the Jewish and Christian God. It's very clear in the way in which Matthew tells the story. And, you know, Matthew's gospel was written maybe 30, 40, maybe 50 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, still first century. The fact that this tradition makes it to one of the gospels means that it was very, very important to early Christians, precisely because so many non-Jews were becoming Christians. Listening to this, it becomes obvious that mysticism is what led to the three Magi. And as popular as they are, especially in Hispanic culture, Spain, and Latin America, nothing compares to jolly old Saint Nick. (laughs) Where does he come in? That's the question. Ah, Well, you know, in Hispanic cultures and other other Mediterranean cultures, non-Mediterranean cultures too, the three kings, we three kings from Orient are. Yeah, they bring gifts, and they are the main reason for gift-giving at Christmas time, even though their feast day is January 6th, Epiphany. You know, they create an ark. The story has an ark from the birth of Jesus, celebrated on the 25th of December to the arrival of the three kings, as they're called, on January 6th, the 12 days of Christmas. And the popular Christmas carol, 12 days of Christmas, you know, giving 12 different gifts. That was a custom in, in many places. But in Hispanic cultures, and especially in the one that you and I grew up in, the three kings brought their gifts on January the 6th. And that was uh, so important. I happened to grow up in a household where we basically had the Hispanic Christmas with some gifts on January 6th. We also celebrated 25th of December with presents from whom? Santa Claus. (laughs) Not San Nicolas or Saint Nicholas, but Santa Claus. And who was this non-Christian figure who, um, I was told, lived in the North Pole and came loaded with presents on the 25th of December? And not only that, those were the really good presents at my household. If I could put it crudely as I would if I were still a teenager, the three kings always brought inferior gifts <laughs> at my household anyway. Practice of gift giving stems from the three, you know, the, the story of the three wise men, the three kings, the, the three magi. They brought Jesus gifts. So the Christmas season is one for gift giving. 
But how does Santa Claus come into being? He is, of course, Saint Nicholas, a real saint who lived in the third and fourth century, who became a bishop of Myra, a city in what is now present-day Turkey. And this Saint Nicholas somehow, through time in Christian culture, came to be associated with gift-giving. And much like St. Francis, the story of St. Nicholas, of course, was written quite some time after his lifetime. So there's a lot of legend in it. But he also supposedly gave up everything he owned and lived a life of poverty and then eventually was made bishop. There's one story on which his association with gift-giving is connected. And the story goes like this. St. Nicholas was always very focused on charity, right? On providing things for people who didn't have what they needed. So there was a man with three daughters who had no money with which to pay for a dowry. What's a dowry? Well, back uh, up until fairly recent times, in many cultures, if a woman wanted to get married, her father had to give money to the groom and the groom's family. Could one say that they were buying the marriage for the daughter? Yes, they were. The whole idea, the whole premise of the dowry rests on the fact that in agricultural uh, economies, women are not usually associated with producing, creating wealth, but are rather seen as a drain on whatever wealth a family might have. Just another mouth to feed. And this, of course, relates more to naturally. It relates more to people in, in a, let's call it a higher income bracket than it does to peasants, because in peasant families, everybody has to work, including the women, often more than the men. But anyway, this poor man didn't have a dowry for his three daughters. And as the story is told, it's the, the fact that St. Nicholas heard about these three women and the fact that because their father did not have enough money for a dowry, they were going to be turned into prostitutes. So to prevent them from becoming prostitutes, one by one, he secretly brought gold to their house and snuck the gold in somehow, right? Here comes the sneaky Santa Claus coming down the chimney part of the story. He snuck some gold into the house. So the first one gets married off, goes in again, sneaks in more money, more gold, I mean. And the second one gets married off. And then uh, for the third one, the father stays up all night for several days <laughs> waiting to see how this gold is coming into the house. And, oh, yeah, he discovers it's St. Nicholas, St. Nick, who's doing this. And he said, you know, immensely grateful. So St. Nicholas, the gift giver, saves these three women from sort of basically being given over to prostitution. And the story grows and grows throughout the Middle Ages and it spreads. And by the way, St. Nicholas is a very important saint, venerated by both the Western Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, even after the, the split between the two churches in 1054. St. Nicholas is immensely popular in Slavic cultures, in Slavic Christianity. So much so that, like as in Hispanic families, there's a different date for Christmas for St. Nick because his feast day is December 6th. 
which is close to Christmas. And that's how St. Nick, St. Nicholas, the gift giver, comes to be associated with Christmas because it's basically the same season, the same time of the year. So if you want to see the Christmas season from a global perspective, Christianity is a global religion rather than just European or American. Christmas can begin on December 6th and end on January 6th, a whole month. And in some cultures, that's the way it is because St. Nick is celebrated. Christmas is celebrated on December 25th and Epiphany celebrated on January 6th. What I find humorous is before they gave St. Nick the, the red suit and red hat and, and the long white beard, St. Nick was known as the slayer of demons. Yes. Yes, he was. Yeah. <laughs> he was known to go to these Greek temples, worshiping Greek gods and goddesses, and through prayer, he would knock these temples, the altars down, the demons would cry out to him, leave us alone, and he would send them into the pits of hell. In essence, a mystical experience because he's yeah. talking directly with these demons. But well. during his time, even though he, the story that you told of the three sisters and the gold, he was a gift giver, but he was also a, um, he gave other types of gifts. <laughs> Yes, yes, he did. And he had a, yeah, another gift that he's known for. Although, of course, scholars say, no, this never happened. But there's an there's a ancient Christian tradition that at the very first council of the church, uh, when Christianity became legal in the Roman Empire, at the Council of Nicaea in 325, a council called by the Emperor Constantine, St. Nicholas was in attendance. And so was the the person responsible for making this council necessary, Arius of Alexandria, who taught that Jesus Christ was a lesser divinity than God the Father. In other words, God the Son was a lesser type of divinity than the Father. And though the Christian world was torn apart by this teaching, and the Arians, actually, the followers of Arius, known as Arians, had the upper hand for quite some time. The Council of Nicaea declared Arius a heretic. But here's the story that brings in St. Nick. There's a tradition, a legend, that when St. Nicholas met Arius for the very first time, he slapped him on the face. <laughs> and there, there's actually a whole iconography about this, especially in the Orthodox tradition, an image of St. Nicholas slapping Arius in the face. So far away from our image of, you know, jolly Santa Claus and his reindeer, and which if anybody's curious about this legend of how St. Nicholas of Myra ends up becoming Santa Claus, you have to actually trace various strands of different legends, including some pagan legends that get woven into the story and end up becoming popularized in 19th century United States and in some European countries, because actually the name Santa Claus, as promoted in the United States, comes from the Dutch settlers of the Hudson Valley in New York, because that's what the Dutch called St. Nicholas, Nicholas. And somehow in the 19th century, Santa Claus develops 
and many attribute the figure of the you know the red suited bearded fat santa claus to cartoonist thomas nast a 19th century cartoonist best known for his political cartoons and it can also be said that the location of saint nicholas's or santa claus's workshop was moved to the north pole <laughs> in the late 19th century. And Santa Claus assumes a, a very Nordic kind of existence, you know, living in a totally frozen wasteland <laughs> with elves. Elves, where do elves come from? They're not Christian. These elves are from pagan culture. And the flying reindeer, for heaven's sakes, where does all this come from? It's a mishmash of pagan and secular and vaguely Christian legends. Let's put it that way. The real St. Nicholas, nobody doubts his existence. They may doubt even the story about the three women rescued from prostitution, but there's no doubt that he existed. His body ended up being moved to Italy, to Bari, when Myra in present-day Turkey became Muslim. Some sailors actually went and stole his corpse and brought it to Bari. And then from Bari, the relics were taken from his skeleton and distributed to many other places on earth, including Venice and many other places. So there are relics of St. Nicholas scattered all over the globe. And I just read very recently that some scientists at Oxford University did a chemical analysis and a DNA analysis of relics of St. Nicholas. And they determined the age of those bone fragments was indeed from the 4th century. That's how old they were. And then they checked the DNA in bits of fragments from different locations and found out those fragments had come from the very same skeleton. And there could be no two ways about it. So it's amazing how all of this comes back to a bishop who was most probably a mystic himself, and whose ability to perform miracles while still alive. And slay demons. And slay demons, yes. All gets wrapped up into one very colorful package for Christmas. <laughs> yeah, it's the wonders of marketing, how it could turn anything into something else. But yes. I, I think what we all learned here today is how mysticism plays an important role in the Christmas story and the Christmas season from the nativity scene, how mystic experiences led to the birth of Christ and how mystic experiences led to the three magi coming to visit him and how a demon slayer, St. Nick, becomes a fat white bearded man in a red suit riding yes. a sleigh with reindeer. But it all has a common thread that mysticism was involved in the whole Christmas story. And still is. And people talk about getting the Christmas spirit and, you know, and having a transcendent experience of some sort at Christmas, the kind that children tend to have. I don't know uh, how it is or was for most of our listeners, but I know when I was a child, there was no more magical, mystical day than Christmas. And of course, it had everything to do in so many ways with that nativity scene my dad set up every year. If you look back at all the popular 
Christmas movies, even ones being produced today to the ones produced decades ago, a lot of them have a mystical component to them. Even going back to A Christmas Carol, which later has become countless plays and movies and keeps being played over and over again, that whole entire story is a mystical experience. Yeah. Ghosts and a conversion experience. Yeah. So mysticism is a major part of Christmas, even so much so that filmmakers or storytellers that aren't necessarily Christian, that were not brought up with a Christian background or or history, can see the mysticism in it because they tell a story from that perspective with visions, with dreams, with ghosts appearing, with people going back in time, people going being able to go back and change all the things they did wrong. Those are all mystical experiences. So yeah, yeah. M- mysticism is a very integral part of Christmas. The real meaning of Christmas, uh, broadly speaking, right? Which in a, in a movie such as It's a Wonderful Life, you know, from the 1940s with Jimmy Stewart, he's helped by an angel. This movie has become, it wasn't very popular when it was first released, but then it's, it's become an American Christmas classic, this movie. And it's all about the miraculous and about the interweaving of the mundane with the divine and supernatural, which is at the core of all mysticism, including Christian mysticism. Well, Carlos, as we come to the end of this episode, I want to most of all wish you a Merry Christmas, wish our listeners a Merry Christmas. But I want to thank you for this wonderful year that we've had with the Christian Mysticism Podcast. I've truly enjoyed it. It's been a Christmas gift for me that's been giving to me twice a month, every month, this whole entire year. And for me too. And I'm really looking forward to our next season starting next year in January. And how do you want to kick it off? Oh, well, you know, there are so many topics to choose from. I've been going back and forth, back and forth, and have decided that we might want to kick it off once again by playing with time. And I think it would be very good because we've received several emails, questions about mysticism in more recent times. Mystics in the you know 18th, 19th, 20th, perhaps even the 21st century. And I think that would be a good way to start the year. Bring mysticism as close to the present as possible. There are several individuals that we could focus on, and most of them have not written a great deal. They're known for their mysticism, and they're known for the mystical miracles that uh, surround their lives. But unlike most of the mystics we have covered who wrote things that we can examine, they have not. So we'll put a bit of mystery around this too. Who are the ones that we're going to begin with in January? Stay tuned, (laughs) and you'll find out. Well, we'll be kicking off the new year with the new mystics. Well, thank you, Carlos, for a wonderful Christmas episode, a great episode to end our first year and our first season. I also want to thank our listeners who have been incredibly supportive and have written to us and helped spread the word. It's amazing to both Carlos and I how this show has really grown. 
with more and more listeners with every episode that comes out, thousands of listeners every month, and we we just can't believe it. We haven't really marketed or anything like that. It's just by word of mouth and people telling others. And we do truly appreciate you guys. And we hope that you continue to listen to us and telling your friends about it. As we close out the year, we want to wish you a Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, and thank you for listening to the Christian Mysticism Podcast. If you have any questions for Dr. Ayer, you'll find our email address in the show notes. Just send it over and we'll try to answer it in a future episode. And don't forget to click the subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode of the Christian Mysticism Podcast. <music>